Mr. Skygak from Mars was a cartoon character created by American cartoonist A.D. Kondo, who's probably more famous for another one of his creations, The Outbursts of Everett True, which was a two-panel comic strip featured in newspapers around the country from 1905 until 1927, and which starred a portly, middle-aged man named Everett True, who wore an old-fashioned, for the time, coat and bowler hat combo, and who basically spent all of his time wandering around being angry at people. Everett True's formula was pretty simple. The titular character would see someone doing something annoying, and this almost always meant something annoying to old-fashioned, middle-aged people of the era, and he would then shout at them and hit them with his umbrella and shake his fist at them and tell them off in colorful ways. The result was a comic strip that was less funny in the sense that we think of comic strips as often being funny in the comedic way today, and more it's funny because it's true. This character tells people off in the way that we sometimes wish that we could tell people off, and says things that are impolite to say because he's just one of those people. That such a concept could last more than two decades says something about people of the era, but also about people in general, I think. There are more evolved versions of this style of pseudo-humor that exists today, though they often take the shape of stand-up comedy and have a little bit more actual comedy included. Mr. Skygak from Mars also had a formula that was repeated ad nauseum from its origin in 1907 until its last appearance a decade later in 1917. The idea was that this stout, skinny-legged, long- and fuzzy-headed alien wearing what amounts to a sharp-shouldered dressing gown that reveals his knobby knees is walking around Earth taking notes about how things work on this planet. The comic would usually have just one or two panels and almost always demonstrated some common element of human life before portraying that thing through the lens of an alien from Mars who understands absolutely nothing about how humans do things. Unlike the aforementioned Everett True, Mr. Skygak actually has some funny moments, even through modern eyes. Like when he watches a man trying to repair a flat tire on his early 20th century automobile and assumes that this vehicle is, in fact, a talking machine with no other apparent use because from his perspective, it's a big lump of metal and rubber that seems to be mostly just shouting and cursing effusively and nothing else. Beyond its value as a piece of period-reflecting art, though, Mr. Skygak from Mars is also considered to be the first-ever science fiction comic and features the first-ever extraterrestrial visitor in the history of comics, and he's purported to be the first-ever character from pop culture to have become well-known enough, to have become popular enough in the cultural understanding of the day, to have been represented in costume form at a masquerade. This masquerade party where people dressed up in period-based costumes and extreme versions of the fashion trends of the day and as historical figures, well known from actual history or from mythology, it was held at a skating rink and a man named William Fell attended the event dressed as Mr. Skygak, while his wife attended as another character from another comic. 
and that character's name was Miss Dill Pickles. So although Mr. Fell typically gets the credit for being first to wear a costume that represents a pop culture character and having that dressing up commemorated in the public record, and that part happened because he won the Best Costume Award that night and was therefore commemorated in the newspaper, we should probably spare a nod for Mrs. Fell as well, who, though left awardless, was nonetheless a cultural history trendsetter as well. What I want to talk about today is the rich subculture that has grown up around the proposition of portraying our beloved pop cultural icons in costume form. Today, I'd like to talk about cosplay. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Cosplay is a term that was coined by a Japanese man named Nobuyuki Takahashi when he was attending the 1984 World Science Fiction Convention in Los Angeles. The attendees of this convention were prone to dressing up for what at the time were called masquerade events, but which Takahashi referred to as cosplay, a portmanteau of costume play, because that term seemed more appropriate to the gleeful fanfare that he experienced than the word masquerade, which translates into Japanese to mean something like an aristocratic costume. A decade or so ago, cosplay was still a fairly niche thing. And there was a good chance that unless you were a regular Comic-Con attendee already, or part of some relevant online fandom, you would never have encountered the term or the concept. That is far less the case today. In the years since cosplay has, like many a geeky passion before it, come clamoring into the mainstream, influencing everything from pop culture to celebrity, from other events and holidays to the very cultural artifacts from which the costumes are derived in the first place. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from CNBC, and it's entitled, This 29-Year-Old Makes Six Figures a Year as a Professional Cosplayer. This piece focuses on Stella Chu, a fairly well-known cosplayer who makes a low six-figure income, purportedly, attending video game and comic-focused conferences around the world. The business model there would appear to revolve around these conferences paying icons like her to attend their events, to dress up in cool costumes, and to take photos with fans. Basically, a professionalized version of what a lot of people do in the cosplay world anyway. But she also makes a significant portion of her income on supplementary work, from selling the costumes that she makes and producing costumes for other cosplayers, to streaming on Twitch, selling merchandise via Etsy, producing pins and stickers for her patrons on Patreon, and all the other random opportunities that arise for folks who are able to get into the spotlight within a particular niche and make a name for themselves, who are able to get a whole lot of followers. Chu does say in the interview that a huge chunk of what she makes each year is reinvested in her craft almost immediately in making these elaborate and, to my eyes anyway, very impressive costumes. They're really cool looking and professionally done. And she says that a great deal of her time as well, in addition to money, goes into making these costumes. So the business model for this type of thing goes beyond just wearing cool costumes to events. It's predicated on building the economic infrastructure to make said costumes in the first place, regularly. 
providing yourself the time and materials required, and then leveraging the notoriety gained as a result to bring in more money and notoriety, hopefully enough of both, that you can pay the bills and afford all the trappings of what would seem to be quite a public lifestyle, filled with geeky enthusiasms and periodically meeting a whole lot of fans at these conventions and conferences. I did an episode a while back on social media influencers, and one way to look at cosplayers who make a living, or a partial living, from their costumes and wearing those costumes is that they are influencers for a variety of interconnecting fandoms. A fandom is a group of people who share a passion for a particular comic book franchise, movie series, video game character, TV show, tabletop or card or board game, or really just about anything else, so long as the level of passion that they have for that thing is fairly deep. So you might have a fandom oriented around Star Trek and another dedicated to characters from the video game Overwatch. But in both cases, the folks in these fandoms will not be casual consumers of the show or game. They will be dedicated to the story arcs and details, to the stories behind the making of individual episodes, and the Easter eggs buried so deep in the game that casual players would never know they existed. People in fandoms commit their time and energy to exploring, reading about, writing about, talking about, and dressing up as characters from their cultural focus. And although you can technically have fandoms for just about anything, from late 18th century fashion trends to motorboat racing, the most common application for that term, colloquially, today, refers to people who feel a strong connection to Princess Leia, or Miles Morales, or Tracer, or Doctor Who. It's worth mentioning that while fandoms can sometimes be a positive development for a particular cultural touchstone, they can also, at times, become somewhat toxic and insular and pedantic or dogmatic. Star Wars, which is owned by Lucasfilm, which itself is owned by Disney, has had a decent amount of trouble with aspects of their fandom over the past handful of years. As Disney began to diversify their characters across its brands, which includes Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars properties, among others, a particular subset of the Star Wars fandom began to complain that they're seeing too many women as main characters, too many people of Asian descent, too many, essentially, non-white, non-male characters with actual parts and lines and important roles to play within the storyline. A lot of the initial discussion between members of this fandom took place on white male-dominated groups like 4chan and certain Reddit forums that catered to these predominantly young white men. And the consequent crossover has led to rampant and dangerous harassment for actors in Star Wars films who are not one of their tribe, in their mind at least, who are not part of the white man facet of the Star Wars universe. Actors and characters who do not, as they see it, represent them specifically. In some cases, these anti-diversity harassment efforts are successful, at least in terms of reducing representation for people in groups they see as being opposed to their vision for the Star Wars universe. Kelly Marie Tran, an American actress of Vietnamese descent, eventually left social media after playing a leading role in the Star Wars film The Last Jedi after a focused harassment effort from this fandom subgroup. 
others working on all aspects of the Star Wars universe, from actors to writers to producers and comic book illustrators, have also been harassed and doxxed and hacked, and in some cases subjected to more subtle criticism campaigns, where this segment of the Star Wars fandom will submit a torrent of fake reports and spread fake rumors about them, mocking up doctored screenshots of them supposedly having said something horrible, and then copying Disney on their message, on their email, on their tweet, whatever, trying to get these people fired asymmetrically. These attempts do not always work, of course, but they do represent a psychological and at times professional and reputational cost for people who dare to cross these highly motivated groups. It's unlikely Disney is too terribly scared of a bunch of teenagers and emotionally teenaged adults who threaten not to see their movies if they don't make sure that all the women on screen are relegated to the role of sex objects, but other less sprawling and wealthy and powerful entities can have their hands forced in this way. A gaming company, for instance, or a comic book series could very easily have their actions determined by a fandom that represents a significant chunk of their game-playing comic book purchasing audience. I'll get into the dark side of cosplay more in a bit, but for now I'll leave it there and note that in most cases, fandoms are cherished aspects of the pop culture world. And even when there's a segment of a fandom that is made up of angsty, angry, misogynistic man-babies, there's almost always an equal or greater number of people that are immensely supportive of the creators, the actors, the writers, the producers, and everyone else involved and their vision for their creations, whatever that vision might entail. Cosplay is one of the ways enthusiasts within fandoms show off their passion and dedication by investing the time and money required to create and wear that Katniss Everdeen outfit or that perfect Iron Man ensemble. You're sending up a signal flare to your people, others who totally get it, who geek out about what you geek out about, telegraphing clearly that you are one of them. And on top of that, you are able to share visually something about why you love the things you love with other people, with strangers. Some of them, people who may never have heard of this thing that you care about so passionately and who could then become curious about it and come to enjoy it because of you. Interestingly, although cosplay is popular around the world today, the modern iteration the dominant modern iteration anyway, has two main cultural origin points, which have independently subsumed other cultural inputs over the years, other cosplay origin stories, into their own. Japanese cosplay is heavy on the replication of outfits and characters from anime and manga, which are Japanese-style cartoons and comics, respectively, and from video games. But they're also big into dressing up as their favorite boy band performers or as representatives of various music genres. A type of cosplay sometimes called visual kai, which means something like visual style or system, and which tends to manifest as people dressed up with elaborate hair and makeup and clothing, all of which evoke hair metal music or bubblegum pop or country western, all to a cartoonish degree. Another important distinction between Japanese cosplay and the kind more common in western countries is that it's not really cool to wear these outfits out in public. They're generally worn in a set-aside place like a conference hall where a convention takes place, and then there's a nearby area for taking photos, and that's it. You'll also find cosplay-like activities at themed restaurants and bars more frequently in Japan. 
things like maid cafes, where waitresses dress up as traditional French maids and behave in accordance with the pop culture understanding of French maidliness. So very formal and subservient and exacting in how they serve the tea and their overall presentation and so on. In the United States and other Western countries, on the other hand, we have many traditions, like Renaissance fairs and historical reenactments and live-action role-playing games, which I'll discuss in a second, along with holidays like Halloween, and those make us a whole lot more comfortable with the idea of just wandering around in public, wearing costumes and elaborate get-ups. Our conference-based cosplay tends to be less formal as well and that there's typically some kind of masquerade-style onstage presentation where those with costumes can be introduced to the audience and judged on their look. But photos are taken all around the event most of the time, and often the judges will just wander around the space and check out the costumes in situ, rather than doing so up on stage as part of their formal presentation. Western cosplayers are also far more likely to represent live-action characters than their Japanese counterparts. So, characters that are portrayed by actual humans on film or TV shows, as opposed to the Japanese penchant for focusing on anime, manga, and video game characters. Let's take a quick look at some of those Western cosplay precursors I mentioned, as there are elements that have carried through that I think do a decent job of explaining something about what folks find so compelling about this subculture, but also point to the origins of some of the issues that plague it. Historical reenactments are probably the oldest ancestor of cosplay, as the Romans, at their height, used to replicate play-acted versions of famous, and even to them, historical, battles, sometimes in their amphitheaters, sometimes in their coliseums, with varying degrees of actual violence and bloodshed. At times, animals and humans were actually injured or killed during these recreations, and in some cases it was just acting and special effects. This tradition continued throughout the European Middle Ages, as Western countries continued to replicate those same battles and moments that the Romans replicated, while also recreating Roman battles and happenings, the reenactors becoming the reenacted. These reenactments and similar, often more theatrical presentations of a similar nature that would take place in Japan and China and elsewhere in the Eastern world at different points in their history, they were primarily for entertainment or educational purposes. These battles and conquests were fun to watch, definitely, but it also helped the youth of the day understand what came before, and it helped storytellers share important cultural values and lessons through the stories of their ancestors mythologized though they often were. But probably the main motivation, and what often kept these things popular and monetarily viable, was their entertainment value. It was just really interesting to see old-fashioned clothing on people who were behaving in an old-fashioned way, performing heroic and villainous acts, and at times cutting each other to bits. The world of historic reenactment continues to flourish around the world today, but it's different outside of the glitzy world of film and stage. The folks who reenact to reenact as a hobby or profession, to remember the past, to commemorate the dead, to take pleasure in getting the details just right, they are a separate fandom. They have their own norms and folkways. For instance, within the world of historical reenactment in the United States, there are generally considered to be three main levels of dedication to the craft. 
Farbs, sometimes called polyester soldiers, are people who are not terribly dedicated to the craft, and although they may possibly have a decent outfit, a costume that's okay, they probably won't have anything beyond a superficial understanding of their character, their time period, or the battle in which they are participating. The term farb is thought to be a truncation of something like far be it from authentic, but a modern joke explanation for the term has it defined as an acronym, meaning forget about research, baby, which I think speaks volumes about what sorts of things are held dear within this particular fandom. That lack of research, that lack of dedication to the historical style of dress, having the exact right buttons on the uniform, the precise, historically accurate badges and symbols, the right way of speaking, the brand and make of pocket watch that were available at the time, the way they wore and cleaned their hats and underwear. That's the distinction between these groups. And the farbs lay at the far end of the giving-a-damn spectrum, while on the other end we find the so-called progressives, that's their preferred term anyway. Folks who are a bit farbish, and those who exist within the mainstream, the second group of the reenactment world, who are somewhere in the middle of the accuracy and dedication spectrum, may be more likely to call the progressives hardcore authentics, or even stitch counters, referring to their reputation for being pedantic about the smallest detail of their portrayal of historical events and people, even to the point of what seems to outsiders as ridiculousness. Here in the United States, there are a lot of diehard Civil War reenactors, especially in smaller towns and in the geographic South. But there are also plenty of reenactors who focus on other time periods, from classical Greece to the European Dark Ages to the Renaissance. And it was actually a Renaissance reenactment back in the 1960s in Southern California that led to what's now become a wildly popular and widespread tradition in this country, the Renaissance Fair, sometimes called a Renaissance Festival. Now, Renaissance Fair recreations are not unique to the United States, nor did they start here. In the UK, for instance, reenactments of historical pastimes like jousting tournaments and May Day festivals have been going on for hundreds of years at least. But the US version, or versions, I should say, as they've popped up in a bunch of different shapes over the past handful of decades, they usually focus on either May Day or fall festival fairs and either take the shape of a period piece theme park or a traveling festival that arrives in set locations around the country at about the same time each year. Many of these events are set broadly somewhere in the UK under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, which is generally considered to be England's Renaissance period, but they also often incorporate themes from the reign of Henry VIII, are set in Renaissance-era France, or incorporate outsider entities like Vikings and pirates, which would not have been accurate to the English Renaissance period. And most of them, and this seems to be increasingly the case, as fantasy novels and films are regularly in the mainstream these days, a lot of attendees and performers at these events take on fantastical versions of people and creatures from the Renaissance or medieval time periods. So you'll see centaurs and fairies, elves and pirates, vikings and mermaids, all hanging out together, watching the knights joust, playing games like drench the wench and soak a bloke, and otherwise role-playing their general idea of what the world looked like, a fantasy version of the European world, that is, hundreds of years ago. A slightly more modern 
and gamified take on Renaissance festivals and historical reenactments can be found in the world of live-action role-playing, or LARPing. LARPers, the players of these sorts of games, will often dress up as the character they are pretending to be, that they are playing as in the game, and physically move through the game world, either serving as full-sized stand-ins for their characters on what amounts to a giant game board, or they play out something more like a game of laser tag with real people holding real weapons that are generally made of or wrapped in foam or some other material that allows them to whack each other without causing any real damage. And these games have wildly variable levels of sophistication and complexity. Some involve a GM, a game master, essentially narrating for a group of players in someone's basement or backyard, the players dressed up in homemade outfits carrying cardboard and foam weapons with no actual athletic action required, while others will involve hundreds or thousands of players in a giant field, the rules set and enforced by a collection of GMs and their assistants, with stringent regulations in place about how physical combat goes down and who wins what. The storyline supplemented with expensive special effects, a bunch of stagehands working in the background to keep things moving along on schedule, and the players themselves decked out in expensive armor, wielding realistic weapons, and engaging in actual sword fighting, or axe fighting, or halberd fighting, to score points, to take out enemies, and to move the game forward. LARPing seems to have originated sometime in the 70s, but it really took off in the 80s as Dungeons and Dragons became more popular, and then even further as the internet became more widely adopted and would-be LARPers were able to connect with their fellow role players nearby and around the world to plan out and hold increasingly sophisticated and more regular, predictably scheduled, LARPing events. In recent years, LARPing has influenced the growth of other similar but different real-world-based games, including the evolution of multiplayer board games, like the many increasingly complex variations of the traditional werewolf party game that have shown up on shelves, and both murder mystery dinner party games, and things like escape rooms. These variations require different levels of dedication, but quite often involve less preparation and take less time to play than real deal LARPing does. They do include very similar elements, though, and many gaming mechanics that were introduced and evolved within the world of LARPing and role-playing in general have made their way into these adjacent spaces for other audiences to enjoy. I wanted to get a bit into these cosplay ancestors because, first, you can see a lot of the elements that shaped cosplay in these earlier species of fandom, and second, because there are some serious issues within the cosplay community and within the many fandoms that often express themselves and reinforce their norms and celebrate their passions through cosplay. And many of those issues can be traced back in sometimes obvious and sometimes zigzaggy ways to these other older practices and the cultures that celebrated them. One very serious issue that has carried over from the world of reenactments and renaissance fairs and role-playing games of all shapes and sizes is that of sexism and misogyny. This manifests in different ways, but tends to almost always involve the exclusion or assumed inferiority of women when it comes to their knowledge of geeky things like video games and comic books and role-playing games, and it can also include outright derision and even, at times, assault with boys and men in this space, 
either lacking all social graces when it comes to women, deciding they are owed something by the women in these spaces, or assuming that if a woman is dressed up as a scantily clad comic book character, that means that woman is there for them, to be touched and grabbed and attacked and insulted and spoken down to, or otherwise treated horribly. Now, I would argue that this is a manifestation of a much larger problem that of misogyny in general, and of groups of boys and groups of men creating toxic self-reinforcing cycles of the ignorant leading the ignorant, creating a veil of mystery and misunderstanding around sex and relationships and healthy communication with all people, with each other, but also people who are different from them. But that general issue, which is a problem pretty much everywhere, throughout the world, to varying degrees, is refined and purified in some of these subcultures which have been traditionally dominated by boys and men, which has led to, at times, increased pervasiveness of these misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, pretty much a culture that is afraid of and threatened by anything that isn't familiar, and which they therefore perceive as not being part of their tribe. And the sad result is that little pockets of enthusiasm can be wonderful in some ways, helping bullied kids make friends and build up confidence, but horrible in other ways. Like when that bullied kid starts to think of women as nothing but sex objects and literary devices for the development of male protagonists. That said, all of these spaces have always had women involved, and those women, the ones I've known, personally at least, have typically enjoyed these groups, these fandoms, despite that increased potency of common societal downsides. They find their rhythm, they figure out ways to deal with the creepy dudes in the group, and they surround themselves with fellow geeks of all genders who do not weird them out and make them feel excluded. They enjoy the company of the majority of people in these spaces, be they man, woman, or person of non-binary gender. Just as in life, there are a lot of tools in these fandoms, and they can have an outsized impact on these spaces, especially for women and minorities and anyone else who does not fit into the stereotypical, hardcore, traditionalist mold of what a fan of something geeky should look like. But these repellent people are still, thankfully, far smaller in number than the generally good, enthusiastic, welcoming folks who just want to geek out about fun stuff with other people who just want to do the same. Cosplayers, as a broad group, tend to be more chill about some things than the bulk of the human population. Crossplay, for instance, is a common subtype of cosplay which involves a man dressing up as Laura Croft from Tomb Raider, or a woman dressing up as Cloud, a male character from the video game Final Fantasy VII. Androgyny is just a super normal trait in Japanese pop culture. Crossplay characters are very common at their conferences, and that commonality has bled over into the world of Western cosplay as well. That said, it's also very common for Japanese cosplayers to dye their skin different colors, to present themselves as being lighter or darker skinned or green skinned or red skinned, whatever makes sense for the character that they're portraying. This is a practice that is fairly common within their cultural history overall. In the United States, we have a more tumultuous history with coloring our skin and are more race aware in some ways politely tiptoeing around the whole idea a bit more, and often for very good reasons. In the United States, even after slavery was outlawed and laws that were supposed to protect African Americans were passed, 
white people would color their faces with shoe polish or some other dark substance to make themselves look brown or black. They would then act foolish or like stereotypes of old-fashioned portrayals of African Americans, especially those who were slaves, who were often forced at that time to make fools of themselves for their master's entertainment or be punished. It was not a proud moral moment in our culture's history, and consequently, what's often referred to as blackface, or anything that even looks a little bit like blackface, coloring one's skin to pretend to be another race, that's bad news. It's really bad form. It's not just impolite. It's either remarkably backwards or old-fashioned, or it's intentionally cruel and racist. Now, I think it's pretty likely that most Japanese cosplayers are not dressing up as Caucasian or African country-descended characters to try to make fun of them. And when they color their skin accordingly, they are not trying to reference the humiliation of slavery or making any kind of political or racial or biological statement about any person or group. They're just trying to put together a good costume. But someone dressing up as a Native American, coloring their skin and wearing traditional Native American ceremonial garb could be considered quite offensive here in the U.S., or at the very least ignorant to a lot of people, even if no offense was intended. And I think it's possible that we will eventually come up with better ways to distinguish between artful, respectful methods of portraying and representing people from groups that we ourselves are not a part of, and making it clear that we are not doing so with the intent to appropriate or belittle or offend. But at the moment, I don't think we're there yet. That's still very fraught territory, and for a variety of reasons, such portrayals are more likely to be perceived as backwards and offensive, rather than as just good costume makeup. So there are sometimes clashes in this space as a consequence of that, and other similar cultural differences. It's possible to dress in certain ways to pretend to be certain characters in some areas amongst some facets of the cosplay world, while doing the exact same thing in another would be a major faux pas at best, and a slap in the face or the seed for a bad reputation at worst. Another issue that's a little tricky to address in some ways, but which seems to be part of almost every conversation that I could find on this topic, is that as the scene becomes more popular, more mainstream, there are certain elements that become more important than others. And in some cases, these new metrics of what makes a successful costume or performance, have come to outweigh the metrics that existed before. And that's kind of a roundabout way of saying that as more money enters this space, the pressure to be passionate about your character and somewhat accurate in your portrayal has given way to just being more conventionally attractive, to being someone who is photographable, marketable, and sponsorable. This takes us back to that article that I started with about Stella Chu. Chu definitely seems to be passionate about her characters, and she's putting in the time demonstrating the skills that you tend to see in people who are totally into this aspect of fandom, into the characters that they're role-playing. But she's also a fairly attractive person. This is a subjective thing, but she has modeled, she makes money by making racy versions of geeky characters. She enjoys the benefits of being a conventionally attractive person in a space that is becoming increasingly focused on that particular type of aesthetic. This pivot toward the mainstream has led to sponsorships, and a lot of that sponsor money goes to people who are marketable to broader audiences. 
And it's not always enough to have a true-to-pop-culture character and costume, or to have your mannerisms and character history on point. That stuff still thrills the fans, the existing audience and passionate conference goers, but a lot of the attention and accolades and the cumulative advantages like that sponsor money and the prestige that comes with it seem to commonly accumulate with people who have these other more broadly marketable attributes. There's a quote from an anime and geek culture-focused discussion board called The Colorless that sums this up pretty well, I think. The post in question asks the community what they think of as being some of the most prominent issues within the cosplay community right now, and one respondent said, quote, Nobody gives a shit, unless you're a tall white girl with big boobs and a slim waist, or Asian, end quote. And another community member responded to that response, saying, quote, And also, my kind of Asian does not really count as Asian. Apparently our potential for kawaii is not high enough, end quote. Now, kawaii is a Japanese word that refers to a certain type of cute. Hello Kitty and Pikachu from Pokemon are both kawaii, as are certain anime characters. So that commenter was indicating that in the world of cosplay, some racial backgrounds are more commonly considered to be kawaii, or kawaii-capable, by the standards in that space, while others are generally not. I personally love seeing the variety of people and perspectives and passions that are brought out by subcultures like cosplay. It's awesome seeing people of any color, any background, any gender identity showing up, having fun, being creative, geeking out about neat geeky stuff, and generally having a good time. I do wonder how much the increased monetization of this space will change that, though, as injecting resources into a community and pointing more cameras at it almost always dramatically changes the incentives that exist within that space. Why people are doing it, how they're doing it, what they consider to be success. Such changes can also bring folks into the fold who are less likely to enjoy the subculture for the same reasons that the other people already in that subculture do. Maybe they're showing up for the money and attention rather than the love of the game, or the show, or the whatever. That said... Some subcultures arguably get richer as market forces shift and new blood is brought into the fold. New people who were previously excluded, in some cases by complex user interfaces, in some cases by perceived biases within the community, in some cases by a lack of interest in the storylines or characters or morals that had been available and presented up until that point, it may not be the sort of change that those uninviting purists want to see, but it may be change that they'll enjoy if they allow themselves to. Or it may be change that leads to a fork, a rift in the fandom, which opens up the space for more varieties, more flavors of appreciation for the same general thing. I suspect this space will only get bigger, more popular, more acceptable by the mainstream, and more expansive in its offerings to a more expansive group of people in the coming years. There will almost certainly be self-proclaimed cultural gatekeepers who try to hold back the tides of change. But this community is already so international, so expansive, and so increasingly inviting of so many groups of people that a continued evolution in that direction seems almost inevitable, despite the best efforts of well-entrenched trolls and pedants and haters and harassers. The book that I'd like to recommend today 
is called Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. This book is exactly what it sounds like. It is a book about bullshit jobs, but it takes it even further than that. It's predicated on an essay that he wrote a couple of years ago on the idea that certain jobs exist for no obvious purpose. And this book explores that concept further to try to identify some of the reasons that these things might exist, despite the fact that they don't exist because they're necessary for the actual creation of the product or service or whatever else that they are ostensibly necessary for. It also goes through and categorizes and creates kind of a species list outline of different types of bullshit jobs and gets into why so many of us feel so empty and vacant and spiritually drained by our jobs, even though those jobs may not be obviously bullshit on their exterior. So if that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. While you're there, you might also consider signing up for the free LKT newsletter, which is really just a weekly email full of links to interesting things. And if you're keen to come out to the tour that I'm currently on, you can find out more about that at becomingtour.com. Feel free to reach out on social media and say hello. I am at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. 